The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. Well, one of the things that's very clear in my life that is in this category and that I think is appropriate given that we're six days away from the start of fall camp for Husky football is, is just that. I've been a, a Husky fan since my dad first took me to a game uh, back in 1984. How many of you were born in 1984? Anyone? Anyone besides the rest of the staff? All right, so uh, my, I got my start in Husky football pretty early, but then I, I also went to the University of Washington, worked in the athletic department. You're wondering, hey, did he play football? And I, I would have loved to have played football, but as you can tell, had I played football, I would have died. But uh, a big fan nonetheless, and it's, it's one of these things that come this time of year, I start to get really excited, and, and even if I'm, say, walking through the airport, and I see somebody wearing something that has like a big zero on it, like a big yellow zero, like there's something in me that, can, that, often, that often wants to fight them, you know, for, for, no, for no good reason, but there is this, this thing in me, I don't know what it is, more, probably more so than than anything else in my life, certainly around this time of year, especially when I have tons of hope and optimism for the Husky football season. Um, if, if I see anything contrary to that, it can rain on, my, on my, uh, my parade a bit. Now, given that, it doesn't have to be Husky football, but if you come up and start talking to me about any of the things that, that I feel loyal to or connected to in my life, you know, it, it could be, you know, 90s Seattle garage bands, you know, grunge bands. You know, you talk to me about Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, I'm going to be with you all the way. I love it. You know, of course, you too. I've been known to play a little bit of golf every now and then. You want to you wanna make sure I'm going to like you, uh, come up to and start talking uh, to me about golf. And I may not even know your name, but if you start talking about golf, I'm like, hey, I like that person. I don't know why it works that way. It just kind of does. But there is something, something about sport, again, that I cannot put my finger on, that can often be this thing that raises this type of motion that for some of you may have to do with, with something else. But, but this time of year, and given my own fanaticism with, with Husky football, there can be something that we notice. Those of you that observed, uh, you don't have to be a World Cup or soccer fan to see how people got into that tournament uh, in June and July. If you go over to Europe, uh, there you, if you walk around London, there's particular pubs that if you walk up to them, there's a big sign on the front door that says no soccer jerseys allowed in here, no football jerseys allowed, because it incites so much passion on the part of those that, that follow uh, soccer in that area. Uh, so what I want to do tonight as we kick off this new series is tap into a little bit of the passion of sports. Not Husky football, but for, and for those of you that, that are not into sports, stay with me. Because all great movies that kind of have sports as a subject are never about sports if they're a great movie. There's, it's about that something bigger that the movie gets, about, gets to. 
Think about those of you that perhaps saw the movie Miracle of the 1980 U.S. hockey team. That's not about hockey. That's about East versus West, communist versus capitalist. It's it's about restoring hope to a nation. For those of you that saw Seabiscuit, how many of you are really passionate about horse racing? Okay. All right. Missy is. Sweet. Okay. Nobody else in the room is. Um, But Seabiscuit in my opinion, is a great movie, not because I'm into horse racing, but because it tells the story of an era where, again, there was hope needed, and we were somehow able to identify with these three characters that were underdogs that somehow come back to experience a type of victory together. Movies about sports are rarely ever about sports. And so as we kick off our new series tonight here at the Summer Inn on real life truth, what we're really looking at are these biblical and spiritual themes that we see illustrated marvelously through popular films. And in the first week of this, I've actually selected a film that captures a real life event. Uh, The movie Invictus shows us how the great Nelson Mandela of South Africa used rugby and specifically the 1995 World Cup to aid in the healing of a divided nation. I think that what we end up getting in this film is a compelling representation of what it means to really have a Christmas time faith. A little bit of Christmas here in August. What I mean by that is to have a faith that is rooted in the incarnation, in the fact that God made himself one of us. And by embracing, in this incarnational faith, by embracing the passions of those that were enemies for the purposes of bringing people together we discover the grace of God. And in so doing, I think scratch on something that is the center of the Christian gospel, and that's reconciliation. So we're going to talk tonight about Invictus. But we're going to talk very little about rugby. And my hope is that we walk out of here tonight having a little bit more of, of a taste of something that I think is central Central, if we are going to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is really all about. So let's get started with this. Let me tell you about uh, Invictus. Uh, it's set in 1995. It's a movie that, that came out just this past Christmas. And it has two spotlights that I've already uh, connected you to a little bit that end up focusing into one big point. And, of course, that's reconciliation. The first spotlight is, of course... President Nelson Mandela. And to to give you a little bit of a history lesson here before we actually look at the clip, Nelson Mandela, uh, if if we were to try and draw the best American history equivalent, uh, my my best shot would probably be Abraham Lincoln. Uh, So to understand the esteem that we need to hold this guy, who is actually still alive, he celebrated his 92nd birthday just last month, that Mandela came into a, he was, he was born into a land that was already very segregated. Uh, I put together a little timeline here. I should say Becky put together a little timeline. And the first uh, tells you that, that he was born in South Africa. And what you've got to understand is South Africa was colonized by Europeans, primarily English. 
And in, in so doing, a lot of different parts of South Africa had these, these segregation laws that were, in 1948, constitutionally endorsed. So this, this legal segregation, what's called apartheid, became constitutional in, in 1948 in South Africa that created this, this very legal division between the European descendants, who were largely, largely had white skin, and the largely African descendants, who, of course, had dark skin. And, and of course, central to that were, were basic rights, including the right to vote and the right to, to hold land. So Nelson is born into, into a system where, where even though the Africans are the majority, they're not the minority, but the minority European or white ruling class is oppressing uh, this majority. So... He's born into this and, of course, begins speaking out against this system as he, like you, goes to university and then into law school. And then he is thrown into prison. I think that's the next bullet there. He's captured, convicted of sabotage, treason, and sentenced to a life imprisonment at the age of 46 for speaking out against the government uh, that, that, he, uh, that ruled South Africa um, at that time. Next bullet here. Then, in 1990, 27 years in prison. I, re- I remember this really well. This was, this was a big story uh, of, of my childhood, that Mandela is released from prison, and then a few years later, uh, in 1994, I believe it is, he is or, um, 1995, or 1994, he's elected president. 1995 is what brings us up to speed in what we're going to to view that South Africa gets to host the Rugby World Cup. Not a big deal to most of us. Any big rugby fans in the room? Okay, Chris is. I like that. Um, but rugby around the world is, is huge. Um, and so this is, this is a big deal. And uh, this was a big deal because South Africa is just coming out of this system of, of apartheid. This, this legal segregation, and leading up to Mandela being uh, elected as pres- president, there were tons of sanctions that kept this country uh, in economic and social distress. And these things are beginning to lift, and so uh, this is a big deal because it's going to be broadcast all over the world. And then, in 1999, maybe the highlight of Nelson's life, certainly one of the highlights of mine, this last bullet, is... December 10th, 1999, I got to shake hands with Nelson Mandela. Uh, I was working for a a PR firm downtown called APCO. One of our primary clients was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and we did this uh, in working with the Gates Foundation, hosted this big event where, where we hosted Mandela, and he spoke in several places around the city. I got to hear each of those speeches, and then at the end of the week, uh, got to to shake his hand, and that's a big deal for me because I, and I want you to connect with this because I think it it shows you a little bit about why I wanted to speak uh, about this film and about this figure of Nelson Mandela uh, tonight. So I really do believe he's probably one of the best leaders of the last 250 to 300 years. That if you look at what has happened in South Africa since he was released from prison just 20 years ago, it is a totally different place. And 
his ability as a leader, what he has done, the risks that he has taken, of, of which we're going to view a little bit tonight, are spectacular. He's a figure that, as, that continues to be a living legend that, that I want to pique your interest in. That when you hear quotes from Nelson Mandela, if you ever get the opportunity to, uh, to hear him speak, he's slowing, a little bit da- slowing down a little bit more at 92, but take it. The guy's brilliant. And his contribution to humanity, I'm not sure, can really be understated. Uh, 27 years in prison on Robben Island in a cell that's probably about my wingspan, just enough for him to lay down, have a cot and a chair, and stand up. 27 years. Pretty remarkable, especially in light of of some of the images that we're going to see a little bit later. So the first spotlight is on President Mandela. Second spotlight is on the game of rugby. Rugby is to South Africa, or at least South African Europeans, what baseball is to us. It is a pastime. It is a passion. But, especially during apartheid, to the African descendant, citizens of South Africa, that was a, a representation of oppression. And even as rugby continued, once the Constitution was, was changed, the symbol of rugby and the national team, the beloved national team on behalf of the Europeans, represented this, this hangover from apartheid. That the image that, that later on in the film is spoken is that these people look like the people that kicked us out of our homes and then burned them. To South African white people, it is a national passion. To South African black people, it was the anti-passion and represented years and years of oppression. The Springboks are this national team that there's tons of passion around. And with the clip that we're about to view is a meeting of the National Council of Sports, which now is, is run by the African descendant citizens of the country. And they are, are, have just brought a vote to totally disband this team called the Springboks and their colors, green and gold, and their anthem, which, which they sung, they are going to get rid of them, and if they start it again, they're going to have it be a new name, and it's going to be a new era. These uh, largely uh, black African folks are saying, we want to see the green and gold of the spring box and everything it represents, no more, let's be done. So this vote has taken place before we have the arrival of our local celebrity here. So let's take a look at this clip. This is from uh, Invictus. Uh, Morgan Freeman is the, the star of the show. He'll be, uh, he'll be the guy that, that shows up as uh, playing Mandela. Uh, particularly, listen to the words that Mandela says to this largely uh, African audience. Uh, we'll get there. So the vote has happened to 
kick out the spring box. They're done. And Nelson, somebody that was at the meeting calls Mandela and says, you better come down to this little, it would be like meeting down here at the community center. And the president says, I should probably go and speak into this thing. All right, we can stop it there. It is a human calculation. It's a human calculation. What's happened here is really established the rest of the movie. That if this, do, if this vote, if, if Mandela doesn't step in right here, there's no, there's no reason to make the rest of this movie. But what Mandela says is, even though these people held us down for generation, even though they locked me up for 27 years in a tiny cell, despite all the things they did, he says, I studied them. For 27 years, I got to know them. I read their poems. I read their books. And I saw what they value. Even Mandela's advisor there at the the very end says, we cannot keep interrupting the affairs of state for things like rugby. Friends, this is not about sports. But Mandela noted that there's something in what's going on here that connected with the human soul. He says the Afrikaners, that is the white people, are not our enemy. If you listen carefully, what he went on to say was the enemy is fear. Fear is the enemy. Not the people that have different color skin than we do and not the people that held us down for, thir- for generations. Fear is the enemy. And if we cut off what they love, it's just going to incite more fear. I think this leads us with a great image into our text tonight. Let me pray before I read this for us. Lord, I want to pray that you would use these images uh, to help us understand your word. Uh, So open our ears that we might be people uh, that have the eyes to see, the ears to hear uh, what you would speak to us tonight uh, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear, hear these words. These are from, from arguably Jesus' most famous words in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at the 38th verse. It says this, You have heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect.
Do you see the connection between Mandela's words, what we've seen in this film, and the text that we read from Jesus' most famous teaching? Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Mandela holds the esteem that he does for me because of the patient and radical love that he demonstrates, but that he also led others to do the same. So Invictus is a movie about reconciliation. And reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel. It's the reason that Jesus came. Not for one race, but for all. I want to spend the rest of our time uh, looking, just reflecting on a few, uh, on a few things that come out of, of these images and, and of this text for me about being people who believe that Jesus has reconciled them and who now live as reconcilers. That where this begins as we gather tonight is do we believe that that is what Jesus came to do? Is one who reconciles, who bridges the gap, who brings together and then asks us to participate as reconcilers. Reconciled to be reconcilers. So how do we do that? First reflection I have is that you stay close. Stay close. Verse 38 says, turn the other cheek. Verse 41 says, go an extra mile. In both cases, there's this image of of being close enough to get hit. Going an extra mile, walking side by side. The temptation is when people start dissing our hometown. or, Or don't like the same team that we do or whatever it might be. That we separate as far as we can. That we get further apart and we just gravitate. It's easy to do this, right? You gravitate towards those that are most like you, that look like you, that sound like you, that think like you, have the same habits and disciplines, values. When there's a disagreement, the natural inclination is to drift away. What this text says is stay close enough to turn the other cheek. To go the extra mile. Uh, one of the things that I often do as a college pastor, I, I do a lot of weddings. Uh, this summer I'm doing eight weddings, and I often get the what I would call the great privilege of doing premarital counseling with the couples that uh, whose, whose weddings I do. And one of the exercises that I have every couple that does premarital with me do is this thing that I call the rules of engagement. And what the rules of engagement are is, is really asking this couple, how are you going to fight? Believe it or not, when you get married, you fight a little bit. And so when I, when I lead this exercise, I say, I want you to talk about you know, three or four parameters that are going to govern how, you know, in your married life, you're going to sort out arguments. And the whole goal of this exercise is to, to, A, acknowledge that disagreements happen, tension can happen, but then to 
to give them tools and a discussion on how do you come together when there's a disagreement instead of turning apart. And some of the things that I hear through this exercise are, are actually quite fascinating without giving you any identities of what other people have said. You know, some of the, the cool things that are in there, the one that, that has always been really striking to me has been one couple where he was very tall, she was very short. I gave them the rules of engagement. And I, hey, what'd you guys come up with? And, and one of the things that, that they came up with was when they were having an argument, they needed to sit down so that their eyes were on the same level. Because she always felt like he was kind of condescending and looking down on him any time. And, and that made her want to back off. Um, you know, other, other couples, they might, it might be okay for them to raise their voice and get really, you know, kind of get in each other's face. Um, and others, it's not in bounds to do that. They, you know, they have to keep things really calm. You know, and they'll, they'll do that. And then, of course, I always ask the question of, how do you know the fight's over? How do you know you've been reconciled? And perhaps the cutest one I've heard is this, thing, this one couple that said, you know, after we've hashed it out, we have to do this thing called the 60-second hug, where they have to be able to embrace each other for 60 seconds. And if, if you're still bitter, 60 seconds is a really, really ridiculously long time to be close to somebody that you really don't want to be all that close to. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Stay close. Stay close. Now, I feel, I feel compelled. This is, this is kind of off the page here. Really quickly to say, there are also times when I think it's really important, um, and I'm, I'm talking about abusive, physically or emotionally abusive situations where that space is really necessary. There might be people in this room that, that you need to get out of an abusive relationship. You don't need to stay close. Reconciliation is not going to happen instantaneously with you staying. In fact, it might mean that you need to take a step away for a while. So as I say, reconciliation can happen in proximity and staying close. Use your good judgment on that. Stay close might not mean right now. It might be years or even decades down the road. We're not called to stay in something that is battering and abusive. So don't hear me on that. But that reconciliation does happen when maybe that couple that I have in premarital takes a quick time out. This is actually a really common practice. A five, set, five to 15 minute cool down period and then they come back and can solve the problem. Okay, so stay close. But there's an asterisk on that one. You are not called to get abused physically or emotionally. Second, I think this is, this is the, the point that is illustrated so well here. In order to love, you have to like. Uh, our former senior pastor here at UPC used to say it like this. It's not uh, enough to, for parents to simply love their kids. They have to like them too. In order to love, you have to like. Um, because it's a sports-themed marriage, I have to tell you this, or sports-themed marriage, sports-themed night, I have to tell you this thing about my own marriage. Okay? Uh, my wife is from the Midwest. She's uh, from just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And 
one of the, one of the things that was a, a pretty big deal when she was going to marry a guy from Seattle, her family valued this, was to figure out where I stand as a Green Bay Packers fan. And it was made very clear to me that Julie, who is a shareholder of the Green Bay Packers, um, that, that she would not be rooting for any other uh, professional football team besides the Packers should we be married 50 years and I remain a Seahawk fan and she be a Packer, so be it. But don't you have any ideas on trying to make her anything other than a Packer fan? Okay? I had to learn how to really like this and, and like this about Julie. It wasn't, it's not enough to just love somebody. You need to like them. In the same way, on the, on the flip side, as Julie and I have been going to Husky games for the, the duration of our marriage, last year, she went to the University of Kentucky in Louisville. And last year, we live here in the neighborhood. We're walking back from the game, and I just threw it out there. Sweetheart, if the Huskies and the Wildcats played, who would you root for? And she said the Huskies. Okay? I've brought her around. Why? Because she <laughs> likes me. Okay? She doesn't just love me. She likes me. She's, got, she's gotten into the things that I'm into. And I've gotten into the things that she's into. This passive love that we can sometimes see says, look, you like the Packers and gardening and that's fine for you, but I like the Huskies and golf and this is fine for me. I still love you. But there is this element of we have to like each other if we're going to love each other. The other way to say this that, that we often talk about in our student leadership program here at UMIN is to say that love is not casually interested. Love is genuinely interested. What we saw on this screen was effectively Nelson Mandela saying, look, if we are really going to erase apartheid, and if we are going to live together as fellow South Africans, even though these guys are the minority, and we really don't even like rugby, if we're going to live together, because sports is so impassioning, we're going to have to learn how to like this. And what ends up happening, for those of you that, have seen, uh, that haven't seen uh, this film, is that the Springboks, per Mandela's recommendation, are restored. They're allowed to keep playing, and they go on to win the 1995 World Cup in their home country, and everybody was rooting for them, blacks, whites, young, old, you know, it, it didn't matter. The country actually rallied around it, and everybody was celebrating in the streets afterward. And it ended up being a very formative event in bridging this cultural gap that existed because of apartheid. And it was because Mandela said, we've got to get interested in this. We need to restore it. We need to like these people. In the message, Eugene Peterson often translates verses like this. It says, don't just say you love people. Really love them. Love your enemies. And friends, it starts by us taking a genuine interest in liking what they like. And then finally, this helps us in, relation, in our relationship to God. It helps us understand our relationship to God. Verse 45 says that you might be children of God. 
And here's what I'm getting at. It is only when we live as reconcilers that we begin to really grasp what it means to be reconciled. It's that opportunity that takes us from reconciliation being this abstract concept. Oh, that sounds good. I think I might like reconciliation. Where when we start being reconcilers, not, we're not living in South Africa, so perhaps we don't feel the tension that we see on this screen. But reconcilers and everything, perhaps it's between social classes. What are we doing to reconcile rich and poor? What are we doing to reconcile old and young? Of course, in our country, we still have a long way to go with reconciling black and white. When we step into doing this, as those reconciled doing the work of a reconciler, we begin to understand that God's love for us is not abstract. This idea of being brought into relationship with God through, through Jesus Christ is no longer abstract. When we start to see how this bridge comes together, we start going, wait a minute, this is real. As a team in South Africa won the 1995 Rugby World Cup and these, these black South Africans who used to root for whoever was playing the Springboks for whoever was playing their own national team when they were rooting for their team instead. And everybody saw that. Was reconciliation at that point an abstraction? No, it became real. So the, the, the final reflection is that when we begin understanding reconciliation and work as reconcilers, that's when it becomes tangible and practical for us as opposed to merely a good idea. This is a huge theme in my own faith right now of wanting, wanting these, these, this grand theology and these ideas to be something that matters on the ground. I was recently preaching at UPC here about Peter and Jesus walking on water and that, that whole idea that we see again here that living a life of faith might mean that you end up with a red left cheek because you turned the other cheek. might mean that you walked an extra mile. might mean that it's not all that easy. But in that moment, it's tangible. It's tangible. Our faith is in this reality that God revealed himself in Jesus Christ for the purposes of reconciling all things to God's self. Quite simply to bring all of creation into relationship with the Creator. And we have been invited to participate in that, recon- that process of reconciliation. And in order to do that, we can't cling to our rights, but we turn the other cheek. We go the extra mile. We get interested in our enemy. And perhaps pray for them. I want to finish with this, with a final quote from Nelson Mandela. He says, For to be free is not merely to cast off our chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Let us be inspired by the hope that we see in the life of somebody like Mandela 
and know that these teachings of Jesus that we get lead us to understanding how great the love of God is for us and for all people. Let us pray. Lord, help us to be reconcilers. Uh, Lord, we pray that your love might be real and concrete to us. That as we seek to be people that get interested, uh, that as we seek to be people that turn a cheek, that go an extra mile, uh, Lord, that we would know your Spirit's presence with us and that these promises that you give are true. Uh, Lord, uh, lead us in being enthroned on our praises as we finish our time here tonight. In Jesus' name.